Hey, I'm really excited uh, this morning that we are beginning a new series. It's in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. If you have a Bible, I'd love it if you'd turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one under the seat in front of you or nearby. So go ahead and grab that one. And in those Bibles, we're on page 961. If you really don't have a Bible at all, um, we would love for you to take that Bible with you. Let that be our gift to you. We would love for you to take that and read it on your own. Um, As we dig into 1 Corinthians 15 over the next several weeks, we would love if you don't just take what we say, what I say, what you hear preached, and just go with that. In fact, there's so much in this passage, in this chapter, that we're not even going to be able to touch, because it is rich and it is deep. And so we would encourage you to dig into this on your own, and to see what it really says, and to pray about it, and to study it for yourself. To that end, uh, we have provided a resource. We are providing a resource, and, and it's this book um, that goes with the sermon series. It's a Bible study book. There are several of them on the table out in the lobby, and we would love for you to pick one of these up if you have not already. These are a gift to you. Please take these. Please use these. A team of, of people here at Trail have put these together, and they're an amazing resource. As we work through 1 Corinthians, they, they kind of guide you through each passage. Um, there are some, some directed questions. There's also some explanation of how you can do your own inductive Bible study and what that looks like. There's space in there for you to take notes during the sermon. Um, so it's just an amazing resource for you to work through this passage and these passages together. And then um, in your community groups, which I hope you're a part of a community group. If you're not, you can sign up a connection point and get connected to one. Then we'll be discussing this together, and these books can kind of serve as a guide for those discussions as well. The way these books are structured um, is that you actually will be reading about the passage the week before the sermon. So if you had one of these um, from last week, you've already read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, and you come in already with sort of an idea of where we're headed, and that's really awesome, and you're, you're prepared, and God's ready to speak to you. God's always ready to speak to you. You're ready to hear from him. If you weren't here, if you don't have a book, that's okay too, um, but we would love for you to pick one up and go ahead and jump in with us. <clears throat> All right, um, so we're launching a series on the resurrection, and maybe part of the question that you're asking, or should be asking, is how, and a little bit why, but also how are you going to spend seven weeks talking about just the resurrection? Why would we spend so much time on this one thing? And that's a good question. And uh, so to start, I'd like to try to answer that question. The reason we're going to spend a lot of time leading up to and, and intentionally looking at it leading up to Easter, because Easter's coming up really soon, um, and we hope that in going through this, it's going to prepare us for Easter, because Easter's huge. Easter is our celebration of the resurrection. But we're not just doing this because of Easter. The opposite, Easter is because of this. Why do we spend so much time talking about the resurrection? Why are we going to? And it's simply because of this. The resurrection, we believe as Christians, we believe that the resurrection is the single most important event in human history. Now that's a bold statement to make. But we believe it's true, and we believe it's true because the resurrection, we believe, is our only hope. Our only hope in this world, a world that we are surrounded constantly by brokenness, by destruction, 
by death. And I say surrounded, but it's us too. All of us, we're broken, we're hurting, we're in pain. And in this world full of death, our only true hope is in resurrection. Both the historical, factual resurrection of Jesus Christ and our promised future resurrection as his followers. And so we're going to talk about both of those because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about both of those and he talks about how those two things are inseparably connected. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next seven weeks. That we have hope in this world only because of the resurrection. So I'm excited to get into that with you. I hope you're excited to follow along, to to dive in, to be a part of this study. And we're going to start today with verses 1 through 11. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And in these first 11 verses, Paul lays a foundation that is absolutely essential. If we are going to have hope in the resurrection, we have to start with this. And so join me. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, 1 Corinthians 15, in the Harback Bible, page 961. Here we go, 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The word of the Lord. All right, as we dig in, let me um, start by giving you a little bit of context to where all this is coming from. Um, so this is 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter. Um, the first part means that Paul wrote two letters to this specific group, and they're both in your Bible. So hopefully we've designated one as first and one as second Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were a group of people uh, from the church in the city called Corinth. So Paul was kind of a a, a traveling church planner. So what Paul would do back in the first century, he would go to different cities throughout throughout the region and he would preach the gospel to them. He would tell them about Jesus Christ. And as they believed and and groups of people believed and they would form together in these communities uh, that, that, that they referred to as churches, groups of believers living together and sharing the gospel together and being transformed by it. And then Paul would raise up from among them leaders, elders, they were called, who would lead those churches, and then he would leave, and he would go somewhere else, and he would start another church, and and the gospel would just spread, and churches were popping up all over. But as Paul traveled, having spent time with these groups of people and loving them so much, 
he was concerned about them, and he would get news, and he would hear what was going on. And as he would hear from them, sometimes he would write to them. And specifically in this case, he writes a letter to the Corinthians at that church in Corinth, and by inspiration of God, so God speaks to and through Paul, and he tells him what to write, and as Paul writes it down, it's not just Paul's words anymore, it's God's words through Paul. And so that letter that Paul writes and gives to the Corinthians, as they read it, they understand this is not just Paul, this is the inspired word of God, and so they share it with other churches. And these churches share, and and multiple letters throughout the New Testament um, are this, they're letters through the apostles, but they're the words of God. And so these letters get passed on, and, and they understand that these aren't just Paul's teaching, these are teaching from God. And so we have it today, not just as teaching from Paul to the Corinthians, but as teaching from God, and it still applies to us as believers today. And so that's what this is. This is a letter from Paul to the Corinthians, but it's also a letter from God to us as believers. But we're coming in at the end, okay? And it's kind of like watching the last 10 minutes of the movie. We're in chapter 15. And so there's been 14 chapters before where Paul has talked to the Corinthians about a whole host of issues, major issues, because here's the thing about the church in Corinth. It was messed up. I mean, they had all kinds of problems, And I say that understanding that this letter is very applicable to us because we have all kinds of problems too. So no judgment there. But Paul looks at and hears all this news about what's going on in Corinth and he's like, no, this doesn't work. This doesn't fit. If you guys are Christ followers, if you believe the gospel, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and has done for you what he says he's done for you, this shouldn't look like this. And so he writes to him because, because there's disunity. Nobody's getting along. There's all kinds of sin that's just rampant throughout the church, and everybody's just kind of winking at it, and it's all good. And, and they, can't, they can't agree on who should be doing what, and everybody wants to be the guy on stage, and everybody wants to be the first in line, and, and there's people abusing their power, and there's just all these issues, massive issues. And so Paul spends 14 chapters writing in this letter telling them, listen, it shouldn't look like this. You shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't be doing this, and you should be doing this, and this is what it should look like. All kinds of instruction and encouragement. And then he gets to the end, and this is where we're jumping into the letter because he gets to the end, and he says, but wait, 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 wait. All that stuff you need to do, all that stuff of what it should look like, there's something that lies underneath all of that. And there's something that you have to get. You have to grasp. You have to have a hold of this. Because if you do all that stuff, but you miss this, then it's all for naught. If you do all this stuff, but you don't have this, then it's a total waste. If you try to do all this stuff, and you don't have this, none of that's even going to work. And the whole reason you should, or ought, or, or it should look like any of that, is because of this. This is the foundation of it all. And it's what he refers to in verse number one as the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Now that word, we use it a lot at Trailhead. If you've been here at all, you've heard us use that word. But that word gets used a lot all over, and it's possible that when we say it what you hear is different from what we mean. Or when we say it, what you hear is different from what Paul is referring to here. And so 
just to start, to lay the foundation, we really need to ask ourselves, when Paul says gospel, what does he mean? And thankfully, helpfully, he explains it right here. He defines for us, this is the gospel. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And starting in verse 3, he says, the gospel is this. Now, the word gospel is an old English word. There was a translation from the original Hebrew word that Paul would have used, excuse me, the original Greek word Paul would have used, which is euangelion, which literally means good news or good message. It's good news. It's news. It's a story. It's an event. When we talk about the gospel, please hear this, because this is the foundation. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about something that happened. We're talking about a factual, historical occurrence. When we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about a philosophy. We're not talking about a moral code. When we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about the teachings of Jesus. None of those are bad things. Philosophy and morality and the teachings of Jesus, those are all good things. But the gospel is not those things. Those things help us understand the gospel. Those things can put the gospel into context for us. Those things can help us see what the outworking of the gospel is. But the gospel is news. It's an event. And that's why Paul explains, starting in verse 3, what the gospel is. And it's not a reflection on Jesus' teaching, and it's not a moral code. It's not more ought-tos or you-shoulds. It's what happened. Look at verse 3. For I, Paul, delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I told you this, you heard it, because it's news. Because the gospel is news, the only way you know it is if somebody tells it to you. That sounds really obvious, but, but think about it for a second. If the gospel, if the good news, if, if our hope, as we get into it, is if our hope was in our own morality, nobody would have to tell you about it. You could figure that out for yourself. If the gospel were philosophy, you could create in your own mind a philosophy. You cannot create in your own mind news. You can, but it's not actually real news when you do that. That's called a fantasy, okay? When it's something that actually happened, the only way you know about it is if you experience it yourself or if somebody tells you about it. And that's what the gospel is. It's a thing that happened. The only way we know about it is if somebody tells us or we experience it ourselves. And Paul is saying here, I received this, I heard it, I experienced it, and I told you. It's news. Here's what it is. That Christ... Jesus Christ died for our sins. First, that Jesus Christ died on a cross. He was sacrificed. And he bled and he died to take our sin on himself because he, Jesus, had no sin. He was perfect. 
He was actually God in flesh, and he is the only human being who ever walked on this earth who committed no sin, who never rebelled against God, who never thought he had his own way of doing life that was better than God's way of doing life, who never deceived himself into thinking that he knew what would be better than what God knew. He was the only human being who perfectly fulfilled the law of God, and yet he allowed himself to be crucified to take the punishment for the sins of every other human being who did not measure up. Every single one of us who has sinned, who has rebelled, who does think that we can do it on our own. Jesus took all of that on himself, took the penalty for everything that we have ever or will ever do wrong. He took it on himself and allowed himself to die, to be crucified, to be brutally tortured and murdered. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says this was predicted. This, in what we refer to as the Old Testament, what what Jews at that time referred to just as their scriptures, prophets had foretold that someone was going to come. They used the word Messiah. It means a chosen one. The chosen one was going to come. He was going to save them, rescue them. And they didn't fully grasp what they meant. They didn't totally understand or expect what that was going to look like. But Paul says, all of that, that was Jesus. And this was predicted and it happened. Verse 4, that, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That Jesus died, but he did not stay dead. That he died, he was buried, it was real, he was in a tomb, the tomb was sealed, there's no getting out of that. He was dead, he did not stay dead. That the one enemy of all of us, that none of us can defeat, he defeated. That death, the inescapable end for all of us, he met and overcame. That he rose in victory over death. That he defeated the grave. And that happened. It wasn't an idea. It wasn't a theory. Jesus rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. And and then he appeared He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, the twelve apostles. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Why is Paul saying this? Because he's saying, look, this is true. You can go and talk to these people who saw Jesus. Why does he point out that a lot of them are still alive? Because he wants the people reading this letter to know. I'm not making this up. Jesus really died, and it was very public. I mean, he was executed in the most public way. He hung on a cross where everybody could see it. But then when he rose again, he talked to people. People saw him. 
It wasn't like he secretly rose again, and now we're telling you, listen, I know nobody knows about this, but believe me, it really happened. Go talk to these people. Don't take my word for it, he's saying. He's saying there are people who actually experienced this, who saw him with their own eyes, who touched him with their own hands, including, he says, verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I, Paul, I saw him. I'm giving you not just the witness of what other people told me, although there are plenty. And if you don't believe me, you can check with them. But he's saying, me too. I saw him too. And listen, Paul says, as I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, he says, I, this is crazy. Jesus appeared to me. This is Paul saying, Jesus appeared to me. And that, I mean, most of the people, everybody else he mentioned, these 500, these were his followers, 500 brothers, the apostles, James, Cephas, those were all guys who followed him while he was alive. And most of the people Paul just listed, those were his followers, Jesus' followers. Now, we have to understand when we talk about that, in saying that, it's not like his followers were expecting this. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, even though Jesus said multiple times while he was alive, I'm going to die and I am going to rise again. It didn't click. It didn't connect. And sometimes we can be kind of harsh about that, like, oh my goodness, Jesus said this, and then you're surprised. How are you? But think about it, okay? If somebody says to you, I'm going to die and rise again, are you going to put much stock in that? Right? So give them a little bit of grace here. They heard it and thought it must be metaphorical. They heard it and it didn't connect, but they thought Jesus was a great teacher, and they thought maybe Jesus was who he said he was, that he really was God. But they thought, those who were following at the time when he was alive, they thought that when he said he was the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who had been promised, that he was going to bring some sort of deliverance then and there politically from their, their captivity to the Romans. They thought that Jesus was going to restore Israel to its place of, of political, financial success, importance. They thought Jesus was coming to instill this earthly kingdom then and there. And when he died, they thought it was all over. When Jesus was crucified, his followers did not say, yes, here we go, part one of the plan. They walked away and they said, it's over. I guess we were wrong. Because he's just been publicly humiliated. He's been executed in the most humiliating way possible. This thing's over. Many of them went into hiding. Because, well, they killed Jesus. Surely they're coming for us now. They didn't expect Jesus to come back. Jesus was in a tomb for three days. On the, on the morning of the third day, there wasn't like a group of, of his followers there with balloons and champagne and confetti. Like, here it comes. Let's do a countdown. Three, two. Like, they were nowhere near there. They didn't want to be anywhere near there. For them, it was over. Jesus was dead. He was buried. The end. <clears throat> but he did rise again. And he went and he saw them. And he appeared to them. And he transformed what they thought they knew. And he changed their whole way of thinking. And then he went to Paul in a different way. 
he appeared to Paul. And Paul says, it's crazy that he should come to me. Because all those other people he appeared to, they had listened to him. They had believed in him. To the extent that they understood him while he was alive, they believed him. Me? Not at all. Paul was the opposite. Paul was the guy they were hiding from. Paul hated Jesus, and Paul hated his followers. And after Jesus had risen again and he'd gone back into heaven, his followers were telling everybody about him, because how could they not? They'd seen something they'd never seen before. They had to tell people about this, and so they're going around telling everybody, and Paul hated it, and he didn't want them telling people about this, because he was a Jewish leader, and the Jewish leaders felt a threat to their power and their control, and to be fair, they felt like this was a heresy to everything they had believed and the truth of their scriptures because they didn't see how it all fit together. And so in Paul's mind, this just had to be stopped. And these people who were talking about it just had to be stopped and they had to be arrested and they had to be put to death. And he got permission to go and arrest as many of these Christ followers as he could. And he was on his way. He was literally riding on his donkey to go arrest people. And Jesus literally knocked him off the donkey and said, surprise, here I am. And Paul was blinded. Jesus knocked him down and blinded him. And Paul said, what is going on? Who is this? What is this? And Jesus said, it's me. I'm the one you're persecuting. And Paul understood. Oh no. (laughs) I've been arresting these people. I've been killing these people. And they were right. And this is real. And Jesus really is still alive. And I was so wrong. And I am in big, big, big trouble. And in that moment, lying in the dirt, with the voice of Jesus ringing in his ear, and the heat of Jesus' glory burning on his face, Paul had to believe this is the end. This is my punishment. I'm about to get what I deserve for everything I've done to Jesus' followers. And instead, Jesus does the exact opposite. He says, Paul, you're going to follow me. I have chosen you, Paul, to take this message, to take this truth. And Jesus didn't say this at the time, but this is where this was going to head. Paul, you're going to go and you're going to spread this word throughout the world. You who have been so violently opposed to me and my followers are going to become the leader of those followers. And you're going to spread this message around the world. You're going to dedicate your entire life to people hearing this truth, this news about me. And Paul says, it makes zero sense. If you are going to determine as a human being, who would be the best messenger for this news, you would pick, I would pick, the person that you look at and believe is the most sold-out, convinced, hardcore believer of the message. Wouldn't you? I would. None of us, humanly speaking, would look at the most ardently, violently opposed opponent of the message and say, that guy, he'd be great. But that's what God does. Why? Because God wants to underline this truth, that it is not about us. That this whole story is his story, 
and that our participation in the story is all by His grace. That's the word Paul uses, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And what is he? He's a follower of Jesus Christ. He's a believer in this news. Why? Because God loved him. And God, by his grace, chose to knock him off his donkey, blind him, and appear to him, and transform his life. And Paul says, and it wasn't me. It wasn't me at all. It was all by God's grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I went out there and dedicated my life to this. I told everybody I could about this. I worked. But it was not I. It was the grace of God that is with me. Paul says, even in that, listen to me, guys. Everything I have done is not the point. You have to hear this. The gospel, the good news, it's not about me. It's not about what I did. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he did. Even the stuff I did was only by his grace. It was only so that this message could move forward. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who spoke it. It doesn't matter who carried the message. All that matters is the message. So we preach, and so you believed. That's the gospel. It's not about me. Paul says, it's Jesus. That Jesus lived a perfect life. He died to take the punishment for our sins, and he rose again. And when we say gospel, that's what we mean. And that's what Paul says we have to understand. It's of first importance. It's the thing, the only thing, the number one thing. It's everything. Now, the question we ask and where we go in our minds, and it's fine, it's the logical question. The question is, so what do we do with that? I mean, how do we respond to that? Okay, here's the news. How does that impact me? How does how do I respond to that? What do I do? And the truth is, all we do is just hear that message and believe it. That's all God calls us to do. All God wants us to do is to hear and to trust that that is true and that is everything. That for peace for, for joy, for connection with him, that message is enough. And it's all we need. That for all the brokenness and all the pain and all the death in our world, this news, this story is all we need. Trust, lean in to that. And it's not about what you do. It's not about how good you are. It's not about fixing or changing or performing. It's just about believing. Now let's talk about that word, to believe. Believing is the verb. The noun form would be the word faith. And so let's talk about faith. Let's talk about believing. 
And let's go back to verse 1 and 2. Because Paul talks about this. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Now, look at those words, remind, brothers, received. Who's Paul talking to here? He's talking to people who have already heard this before. Paul is telling this story not to people who are hearing it for the first time. He's talking to a group of people who have heard the gospel. He was even the one who told it to them. And, and they didn't just hear it, they bought in. They believed it. He uses the word, they received it. It's not like Paul saying, listen, I was there, I told you the gospel, you were like, eh, maybe come back to us later, so here I am with my second pitch. No, this is like, this is it. You've heard this and you believed it. But I'm going to tell it to you again. Why? Why go over this again? We've heard this before, haven't we? Why spend seven weeks on the resurrection? We already know what the resurrection is, right? Here's what Paul says. Well, I need to remind you. I need to remind you why. Obviously, if you need to remind somebody, it's because they have forgotten. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it's because they've forgotten. How does Paul know they've forgotten? Well, I mean, it's two things. Number one, we all forget. We all forget. We are so tempted or so inclined to try to move on from the gospel to other things. Because everything within us says we have to perform, we have to do, we have to, and, and, and then Paul said, and look, I just gave you 14 chapters of do. Here's what you ought. Stop this, start this, 14 chapters. And Paul says, please, don't misunderstand. All 14 chapters of that, none of that takes the place of this. All of that is just an outworking of this. But Paul knows that all of us, hearing do, 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 ought, should, change, stop, start, all of us hear that and in our minds get away from this. And we start to make it about ourselves. So I have to do this, and I need to do this, and I should change this. And it all becomes about us. And Paul says, listen, listen, listen. Those things are true, and they're outworkings of the gospel, but don't forget the gospel. This is the foundation. None of that works without this. None of that has any meaning without this. Without this, that's all just empty. This is the thing in which you stand and by which you are being saved, you're being rescued, not by any of that stuff. And if you start thinking that stuff is going to save you, that that stuff is going to rescue you, you've misplaced your faith. What is faith? Faith is simply believing in something to do what it says it will do. Faith is simply trusting a person or a thing to follow through on a promise. That's all it is. We talk about faith sometimes as if it's like a muscle that we have, that we exercise, that our faith changes things in and of itself. That we, by our belief, cause things to happen. That faith alters our world around us. That it's our faith that moves and changes and alters things. 
that by believing, we can make our lives different. And if our lives aren't different in the way we want them to be different, then maybe it's because we're not believing correctly. Or maybe we're not believing hard enough. Maybe we're not believing the right way. And we look at the end of verse 2, and there's this phrase that can seem to support that conclusion. He says, The gospel is the thing you received. It's the thing in which you stand, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. And then he says this, Unless you believed in vain. Unless you believe in vain. If you hold fast, and it sounds like, it sounds like Paul is saying, this whole thing works, this gospel thing works, if you have enough faith. If you're holding on strong enough, hold fast, don't let go, it's on you, white knuckle it, hold on tight, unless you believed in vain, Hey, this thing won't work if you screwed it up, if you didn't believe the right way, if you didn't didn't pray a prayer in the right way, if when you prayed you said the wrong words, or or if you didn't really mean it. Did you ever hear, I used to hear preachers say this, um, a lot of times they would share the gospel with people, and they'd call them to respond, and they'd say, and pray this prayer, and then they'd say, and if you prayed that prayer, and you really meant it, then now you're saved, you're rescued, you're forgiven. And in my mind, I was always like, how do I know if I really meant it? What does that even mean, if you really meant it? Is that what Paul is saying here? That there's a way to have faith that's wrong? That there's a way to have faith that's maybe not enough? That if you have weak faith, then the gospel's not going to work? That our hope Our hope in resurrection, our hope in forgiveness, our hope in transformation, all depends on the power of our own faith. And that the people we see who just look like they're just really nailing it, they just have more faith. And those of us, and secretly inside it's all of us who feel like we're really struggling, it's just because we don't have enough faith. Is the solution get more faith? Here's the deal. That's not what Paul's saying, because that's not how faith works. That's not how belief works. Faith, belief, do not function and are not effective based on how much you have. Faith is only as effective as the object of the faith. Our faith as Christians, our belief is an objective faith. Let me explain what I mean by that. And I have to get a little bit, a little bit English teacher nerdy here, so just forgive me, okay? Um, I'm an English teacher by day, and so every once in a while, we have to go there with the grammar, and I know a lot of you are like, I left that behind years ago, and they told me when I got the diploma, I never had to hear those words again, but I'm going to use the word subject an object, and you're just going to forgive me, okay? In fact, on behalf of the English teachers around the world, what I want to tell you is understanding the difference between a subject and an object is the difference between life and death, right here. I'm only slightly exaggerating, okay? All right, um, 
Every sentence, you remember this, you remember this when you were a kid. Every sentence has a subject. That's who or what it's about. It's who's doing the action, right? That's the subject. And then many sentences have both the subject and then there's the action and then they have an object. That's who or what the action is being done to or done with or done for. And if we look and simply make this statement, we believe the gospel Here's what you have to understand. The key to that sentence is not the subject. It's not the we. It's the object. It's the gospel. That we believe simply means that we're trusting in the gospel to be what God says it is and to do what God says it will do. We're believing that it's true. It's a fact. It happened. It's a thing. And regardless of the the strength of our faith or the amount of faith we're exercising, how much faith we're placing in it, it all rises and falls on whether the gospel is true. And when Paul says, unless you believed in vain, what he's saying is, this whole thing falls apart if the gospel's not true. But if the gospel is true, that's all that matters. Let Let me tell you a story that I think might help you understand this. So I used to uh, years ago when I was teaching, I had this metal stool, and it was one of those classic, you know, metal four legs with the inner ring, and then the faux leather seat, super comfortable for about 30 seconds, and then it was the worst thing. But, but I had one, and, and this one was old. I'd had it for a few years, and the inner ring had fallen out, which means I knew, because it was my stool, that it wasn't very sturdy. I couldn't literally put all my weight. I couldn't actually sit on the stool. I could rest on it. I could, I could lean on it, but I had to still leave most of my weight on my own feet. I was actually, at times, I was supporting the stool more than it was supporting me. But I knew that, so I could use it, so I kept it in my classroom, and I just had to be careful. I could never take both feet off the ground on that stool. It wasn't strong enough to hold me up. And then one day, um, I had students doing presentations, and so this girl came to the front of the room, and she was going to read some poem or something she had written to the class, and she didn't know what I knew about the stool. Oh, you see where this is going? So she went over to the stool, and before I could say anything, and I promise, I swear, I was going to say something. Before I could, her feet came up off the ground, and all four legs of that stool went in opposite directions. And she just, in front of the whole class, and it just, I mean, it collapsed. And I immediately sprung up over from where I had been sitting and, and started to apologize to her and tell the whole class, listen, 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 that wasn't her fault. That stool was broken. Right? Because you see that happen, and immediately everybody in their mind goes, well, Mr. Park sits on that, and it holds him, and it doesn't hold her. Right? And so, high school girl, so I have to say, like, it wasn't her. Okay, it wasn't her. It was, I don't actually sit, that stool's broken. I just lean, okay? It wasn't, it's not her fault. And it wasn't. It wasn't. That stool was not strong enough to hold anybody, anybody, regardless of how much they believed it would, Anybody who sat on that stool, that thing, when you took your feet off the ground, that thing was going down, okay? It did not have the strength to hold up anyone. She did not fall because she wasn't believing hard enough that the stool would hold her up, okay? When I sat on the stool, it wasn't holding me because I had more faith in the stool, (laughs) The opposite, actually, it was holding me because I had zero faith in the stool, and I knew, okay? Paul is not saying 
that the gospel is like a rickety stool, and it'll only hold us up if we really, truly believe. He's saying the gospel is, and it's either going to hold us or it's not, but that's on the gospel. It's either true or it's not, and how much you believe in it is not going to change that. And that's really good news. Hear this. That's really good news. Especially to those of us who believe that our faith is weak, those of us who doubt, those of us who struggle, those of us who still sin, I need to know that my faith is not in me and my ability to hold on and to be good enough. That my hope is in the gospel that I'm resting in and that it is true and it is strong and it will hold. I have to know that or I am done. I am finished. If it's on me, I stand no chance, and I'm going down hard, and the whole class is watching, and it is my fault. Paul says this is true, and it's what you received, and you stand, and you're being saved. If you hold fast, if you just believe it, unless you believed in vain, if it's true, it's yours. All you have to do is trust. Take your feet off the ground. It's going to hold. It should be so encouraging to us to know, to hear, to remember, for those of us who have heard this a thousand times before, the gospel is not about us. Our faith is not dependent on us. Your relationship with God is not dependent on how hard you believe, how disciplined you are, how much you read your Bible, how often you pray, how openly and gladly you share the gospel with others. It's not dependent on any of that. It's dependent on Him and the truth of this message. And if it's true, and you trust in it, then it's your hope. Let me give you real quick, just to wrap this up, real quick, three serious, important implications of this truth. Because our faith has an object. Because faith is not on us, it's on him. Three things that are true. Number one, Only the gospel can forgive our sins. Nothing we do, no works, no penance, no religious ceremony, no apologies, no good deeds, none of that can ever cover over the sins we have committed. But the gospel can, and only the gospel can. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplished something we never could on our own in our own power. That is such good news because you know and I know that I can't do it, no matter how I've tried, but he can and he has. Only the gospel can forgive our sins. We need to turn from trying to earn our own forgiveness. Drop that. That is a broken, rickety stool that will not hold. And you know what you get? When you're constantly trying to balance yourself on a broken stool, I'll tell you this from experience, you just get more tired. 
It's relentless, and you'll be exhausted. Stop trying to earn your forgiveness and rest in the one who has forgiven you. Only the gospel can forgive our sins. Number two, only the gospel can transform our lives. The gospel is not, and this is why Paul says this here. I'm reminding you, it's of first importance. It wasn't me. It was the gospel working through me. Don't believe the lie that the gospel gets you in and then you move on to something else. The gospel is not just the entrance into the Christian life. It's everything in the Christian life. It's the path of the Christian life. It's not we believe the gospel and then we start working on making ourselves better. It's through the gospel that God transforms us. And so as we remind ourselves and rest in what he has done, he works in us. And as we understand deeper his love toward us, his love flows out of us. And as we understand more his sacrifice for us, we follow and obey him, not to earn his good favor, but because we trust in his love and his grace. The gospel transforms our lives. Stop trying to change yourself and rest in God. Obey him, follow him, but doing knowing it, do it knowing that he is transforming us. Number three, only the gospel can forgive our sin, only the gospel can transform our lives, and only the gospel can give us hope beyond this life. This is where we're going with this series, and so we'll end here this morning, and I encourage you to come back as we work through 1 Corinthians 15. This is a broken world, and we know that. And all of us seek hope. All of us look for something that we can latch onto, that we can trust in, that we can lean into when we are at our darkest and most difficult times. But here is the truth. None of those other things will hold. The only true hope we have is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your money will fail you. Your stuff will fail you. That image you are constructing of yourself so that everybody else will look at you and affirm you and tell you you're good, it will fail. Your relationships ultimately, if you put all your faith and all your trust in your relationships, they will fail because they are not strong enough to hold the weight of your life. We all know there is an end date to our lives. And the only thing, the only thing that can give us hope beyond that end date is the gospel. The only thing that gives us hope that this life, as broken and as painful and at times as beautiful and as wonderful, and just the life that we are in right now, the only thing that can give us hope that there is more than just this, that this is not all there is, the only hope beyond this life, the only hope that there is something greater, something more beautiful, something more glorious, the only hope we have is in this gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the promise that we can one day be resurrected with him, into that beauty and that glory and that goodness through him, with him forever. Only hope for that is in the gospel.
This may be the 5,000th time you've heard that story, that message, that news. Maybe the first. If so, I'm honored to get to share it with you. <clears throat> or maybe you've heard it a hundred times, but this is the first time, and this is not me, this is the Holy Spirit working in you, the first time that it's connected and it's clicked. Here's what I want you to hear. God calls you to trust in it, to believe. Not to do, not to go out and live a better life, not to perform some ritual, some prayer, just believe. Just put your trust in that. And whether that's the first time or the 5,000th time, the invitation is the same for all of us. Trust in the gospel. Let's pray. We'll have some questions, some time that you can pray, and then in a moment, we'll take communion together. Heavenly Father, God, you are so good. God, you are, you are so beautiful and so glorious and so loving, and we are so not. God, we have done nothing, absolutely nothing, to deserve your love. And by your grace, you sacrificed for us. Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died for us, and we didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. There's nothing we could ever do to measure up, and yet you look at us through him, and you say that we're good enough. Oh, God, you are so good to us, and yet our faith is so weak. God, we pray that you'll help our unbelief. Help us to trust in you. Help us to rest in you. Help us to turn away from all those false places where we're putting our faith and our trust those idols that can never satisfy, help us to turn fully and only and completely to you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.